Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. For decades, a manuscript sat unidentified in the archives of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a mystery document having no title, author, or date. Uh, Then the mystery was solved by uh, two sleuths. The manuscript's origin uh, was uh, traced to two Mormon missionaries who lived among the Hopi in 1859. Under the direction of Brigham Young, the two young men were tasked with not only teaching the Hopi to read the Book of Mormon in their own tongue, but to teach them to read and write their language in the Deseret Alphabet, a phonemic system that Brigham Young was promoting to uh, take the place of the traditional Latin alphabet. A new book is out, the 1860 English Hopi Vocabulary, written in the Deseret Alphabet. It's published by University of Utah Press, and the authors uh, are Dirk Elzinga, who's an associate professor in the Department of Linguistics and English Language at Brigham Young University, and our guest for the hour today, Kenneth Beasley, who's a computational linguist with 30 years of experience in natural language processing. Kenneth Beasley, welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Ken Beasley holds a uh, doctorate in epistemics from the University of Edinburgh, currently a developmental architect in text analysis of the group SAP Labs, uh, analysis group, rather, at SAP Labs. Spends his spare time researching Desert Alphabet and other spelling reforms, Hopi history and language, and 19th century pioneer trails in Utah and Arizona. I want to start with the mystery. What? Uh, how did you come to uh, to examine this document? Well, uh, for many years I've been interested in the Deseret Alphabet, which was uh, a non-Roman alphabet that Brigham Young and other leaders of the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the the Mormon Church, tried to propose as a replacement orthography, a replacement writing system for English. Now, we typically write English using uh, a writing system, or the big word is orthography, uh, that uses Roman letters, and um, this is this is traditional. We we take it for granted, but during the 19th century, there were many attempts to reform that orthography, and uh, the Deseret Alphabet was one of those. So, in uh, December of 2002, I was in the Church History Library in Salt Lake City looking at Deseret Alphabet materials, and uh, one of the archivists asked me if I'd ever seen the Indian vocabulary, and I I had not. It wasn't even cataloged. And they brought out this interesting manuscript, uh, all in the Deseret Alphabet, about 12 pages, and it had words aligned in columns. And in the left-hand column, the words were in English, and if you read the Deseret Alphabet, they were easily read. And the words on the right were were all in gibberish. You couldn't read them, and the archivist had uh, correctly assumed that this must be some American Indian language, and they called the document the Indian Vocabulary. And I looked at this document, and I could tell just from the shapes of the letters and the, the version of the Deseret Alphabet being used that it was from Fascinating mystery story. By the way, you, I, I think you write in the book you you cracked the code with the word bread. Yeah, so it's a yeah. basic a basic word which you're able to identify as, as Hopi. Yeah, a, a number of coincidences um, made it possible for me to identify this document. Uh, that same year, uh, just in August of 2002, I had actually been down to the Hopi reservation for the very first time. And at the time, I wasn't interested in Hopi, uh, knew nothing about it, really. But I was uh, tracking uh, the story of one of the missionaries, whose name was Thales Hastings Haskell. And uh, Haskell kept a journal of that mission, and half of it was in the Deseret Alphabet. And I'd been interested in that Deseret Alphabet document uh, you know, for decades, really. 
and finally decided to go down to Hopi and uh, check out this village where, where he had worked, the village called um, Oraibi. And it turns out to be the oldest continuously inhabited village in North America. It's still there. Um, and uh, so in, in the process of going down there, I learned a couple of words, one of which is the word biki. And biki is um, a kind of uh, Hopi bread. It's made out of cornmeal, typically blue cornmeal. And uh, the women cook it on a hot rock. They, they make a, a very loose kind of batter, spread it on the rock very thinly, and it cooks quickly, and they peel it off in a sheet that looks like blue wrapping paper, and then they fold it, roll it up into a little roll, and that's peaky bread. So uh, when I saw this document later that year, December of 2002, and I could see that it was 1859, 1860, just from the Deseret Alphabet, I thought, wait a minute, these two missionaries were down there in 1859, 1860, and one of them kept a journal in the Deseret Alphabet. What if this is Hopi? And I looked at the word for bread, and there it was. It said peak. It wasn't quite right. The, the, the Hopi word is peaky, but it said peak, and that was pretty close. And after I looked at a couple of other words, like the word for dancer was kachina. Uh, the kachinas are, of course, the, the famous dancer and uh, spiritual figures in, in the Hopi kachina religion. And comparison of the other words with uh, words in a modern Hopi dictionary quickly confirms the identification. It is Hopi, and in particular, it's in the third Mesa dialect of Hopi. Yeah, that, that must have been uh, quite the feeling to, to crack the code there, uh, especially for a linguist uh, such as yourself. I'd like to uh, get into talking a little bit about the uh, the, the uh, Deseret Alphabet. Um, this, as I understand it, I learned this from your book, uh, was based on uh, on, a, on an orthography developed by Isaac Pittman, who's famous for his shorthand. So tell us first what, what the, the shorthand, the famous shorthand that I think we all know about anyway, how that relates to, to what Pittman got into later. Yeah. Um, well, in order to set the stage for this story, you have to go back to, to the 19th century, put yourself in, in their mindset. In um, 1837, Isaac Pittman invented a system of shorthand, which he called phonography. It comes from Greek roots that means sound writing. And it was um, based on a kind of alphabet. Uh, the letters of this alphabet were reduced to very simple lines and curves. And you could learn how to write shorthand at speed, at, at speaking speed. And that was the whole point. You'd be able to transcribe letters being dictated. You could transcribe speeches in Parliament or church sermons or whatever, and take them down at speed in shorthand. This it, was uh, a very practical system, uh, very well documented and taught and exploited. Uh, the Pittman family went around Britain, presented it in lectures. There were classes, there were correspondence courses, journals. And eventually, this particular system of shorthand Pittman shorthand or, or phonography, became well-known, uh, used uh, throughout Britain and much of the English-speaking world. It was adapted to at least 15 other languages and is still used today in, in Britain and uh, uh, kind of the, the British Empire countries. It was used in the United States uh, during the 19th century quite widely and even up perhaps until the 1930s when it started to be uh, overtaken by another system called Greg Shorthand. So my mother um, actually worked as a secretary and, and learned uh, Greg Shorthand. And uh, Pittman, the knowledge of Pittman has kind of died out. Um, um, so Shorthand was a great success, and Pittman was eventually knighted by Queen Victoria in 1894 for all of his work in shorthand. But he actually wore two hats. Just a couple of years after uh, introducing uh, his Pittman shorthand in 1837, 
he started advocating spelling reform. And spelling reform would be an alternative alphabet, or like the big O word that uh, linguists use is orthography. And orthography is a system of um, written marks and conventions for using them to to transcribe speech, to to read and write uh, a language. And whereas uh, Pittman shorthand would be used only by a, a trained stenographer, someone who went through quite a bit of training to to do it correctly and do it quickly, spelling reform was for everybody. The idea was to modify or replace the existing orthography of English, which is based on just uh, 26 Roman letters. Um, the typical Pittman system, which he called phonography, had uh, about 40 letters. They were modifications of uh, Roman letters. And you could pretty much read these things straight off. They, they were not that difficult to read and not that difficult to learn how to write if you, if you wanted to. And uh, unlike shorthand, these were not popular. He, he continued to propose and modify these systems uh, throughout the rest of his life. He, he died in 1897. Uh, but they never were popular. They were a money loser for his little family business. He took a lot of the funds that came from shorthand and plowed them into the phonotopy, the spelling reform, and that money was lost. And pretty much that work is forgotten. But um, the Mormons almost chose uh, to use one of these off-the-shelf Pittman uh, phonotopy systems twice before adopting the Deseret Alphabet. It was only at the very last minute that they chose to change the shapes of the letters and produce what has become known as the Deseret Alphabet. Yeah, you, there's a dramatic scene in the book where uh, Willard Richards, who's in the First Presidency of the Church, uh, at a meeting where they're about to adopt Pittman, he, he very ill, he rises up and, and, and says, we shouldn't do this. What, what was his objection? Yeah, uh, very good question. Yeah, the, the, uh, the, the Desert Alphabet was um, designed uh, eventually and promoted by a committee, which was the regents of the Deseret University, which is now the University of Utah. And we have minutes of their meetings in 1853 where they discussed this whole issue of, of spelling reform. And um, it was an entirely open think tank. They, they really did not have a particular goal in mind. Each of the regions was assigned either to present an orthography which he himself had developed or to present some existing orthography. And at one time in the 19th century, there were 50 different orthographical reforms currently being promoted. So they had a lot of, uh, of choices that they could uh, look at. Um, by November of that year, it was quite clear that uh, they were converging in on, on using a version of Pittman phonotopy, which was called the 1847 alphabet. And um, this was an alphabet that uh, Isaac Pittman used to print the Bible, for example, and other books. And uh, he was kind of partnered at the time with a, a famous phonetician named Alexander John Ellis. And Ellis used this alphabet to print a newspaper called the Phonetic News. It didn't last long, but it was an influential version of Pittman's system. And, and the Mormons almost chose it. Um, this was actually the second time they had almost chosen it. Then at the last minute, they decided to make a few changes to it. Brigham Young was in attendance at these meetings. He was actively participating. And they were talking already about ordering a type for it. And then at the very last minute, Willard Richards comes and joins the meeting. And he had not been attending the previous meetings. He was very ill. He was dying, in fact. Uh, he suffered from dropsy, so probably... Um, a congenital heart problem, and uh, he managed to get to the room, and he saw this chart of the alphabet up on the board consisting of Roman letters and modifications of Roman letters, and he said, what is this? He said, this is the same old alphabet, warmed over, as it were. He says, uh, you're putting 
new wine into old bottles. If you're going to have a successful spelling reform, you need to start with a clean slate. You need to start with uh, new shapes, no connections with, with the old ones. And that, unbelievably, changed the course of all their thinking. They threw out all their previous work and embarked on what we now know as the Deseret Alphabet. Mm. The shapes were probably devised by George D. Watt, who was the secretary of this group. And the Deseret Alphabet then continued in more or less the same form for almost 20 years. Hmm. Now, the, the, the Desert Alphabet eventually died out. Uh, what, it was never widely popular, was it? A few people adopted it. Brigham Young was enthusiastic about it, but uh, why do you think it died out? Well, uh, you have to, uh, if, if you look at this carefully, you have to see that the Desert Alphabet was an extremely unpopular reform. It was promoted at the highest levels on the, from the pulpit by Brigham Young and Orson Pratt and other leaders of the church. But there were, in fact, very few people who ever picked it up and used it. A number of people were exposed to it. There were, there were sincere and significant attempts to try to teach it. The regions traveled around the various uh, Utah, Idaho, and uh, even Arizona communities and, and tried to teach it to the people, but the utility of the of the alphabet was was almost nil. Um, it was introduced to the people in 1854. There was nothing written in it. Um, eventually, uh, some sample articles were printed in the Deseret News in 1859 and 1860. Again, in 1864, the the books uh, there were four books printed, two little school books for children, and uh, the Book of Mormon in two forms. Uh, these were not printed until 1868 and 1869, so there were years and years where they were trying to teach the Deseret Alphabet, but there was really nothing to read. Hmm. So um, it should have died out any number of times. Brigham Young uh, kept it alive. Uh, perhaps he didn't want to admit it had been a mistake. Um, it's hard to put yourself in his mind, but he kept it going until about 1875. And then in the Juvenile Instructor, there's an editorial piece that says, well, it turns out the Deseret Alphabet was not as well designed as, as previously thought. Uh, typographically, it's, it's ugly and unsuitable. And the regents have turned their attention back to the Pittman Alphabet, in particular the Ben Pittman Alphabet. Ben Pittman was the younger brother of Isaac Pittman, very upset with his older brother because Isaac Pittman was constantly tinkering with his alphabet, changing them. So um, Ben Pittman moved to the United States, set up his own shop in Cincinnati, and led his own rival spelling reform. And initially the Mormons uh, turned their attention back to one of these Pittman Roman-based alphabets. And at the time Brigham Young died, they were uh, even trying to get the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants published in a Pittman alphabet. Hmm. So what? But then Brigham Young died, and, and that finally put an end ah, to the whole right. orthographical experiment. So what? What's the what's the impulse behind this? You say there are a lot of these movements. You know, Pittmans, uh, the Mormons tried to adopt this, and uh, I guess if it was going to succeed anywhere, it'd be a culture like the Mormons, wouldn't it, where the leaders could, uh, could, could mandate it, failed there. What, what's the, what was the purpose behind all this? Yeah, um, yeah, you're quite right. If it could happen anywhere, it might have been in Utah, where you had the, uh, Brigham Young, who was both the secular and religious authority uh, behind it. Uh, the church had the one printing press for quite a while, so they could control what was printed, you'd think if it could be a success, it would be here, but uh, it was not a success. Um, but compared to many other reforms, it, it lasted 20 years and four books were published. That's uh, a relative success among these various uh, attempts at orthographical reform. But in the 19th century, uh, there was a, a general recognition that it was hard for children to learn how to read. We spent years in school learning traditional orthography. And it was thought that if you could reform that, make it easier, 
that would save years of study, uh, ease the task of, of learning to read and write for children and foreigners alike, increase the literacy rate. Uh, and there were also arguments about it being faster. There would be fewer letters to write uh, because each significant sound, each separate phoneme had its own letter, would save on paper and ink. And at the time, this whole thing was considered progressive. It was forward-looking. Uh, in the 19th century, linguistics was cutting-edge science, and we just don't quite uh, understand that today. It was part of the challenge of putting ourselves into their mindset. It was even thought that the science of phonetics, uh, which was behind... Uh, the uh, design of a good orthography, could even help reform society by erasing class distinctions. Mm. And we see this uh, quite notably. People today know the movie My Fair Lady, which is based on George Bernard Shaw, uh, Shaw's play Pygmalion. And uh, Shaw uh, definitely thought that uh, the study of phonetics could help erase class distinctions in Britain by teaching the lower classes how to speak with a more refined accent, a more socially acceptable accent. Interesting, interesting. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll hear more of this uh, story. So this goes beyond the Desert Alphabet, which is interesting in and of itself, of course, but uh, these two young men were assigned by Brigham Young to go to the Hopi uh, to invent a written form of their language, which didn't exist, and then to, to teach them this, this language, and all the while use the Deseret alphabet. Uh, pretty ambitious. We'll hear how it went uh, following this break. Don't be squeamish when you see something crawling while you're in the garden. Take a closer look. If what looks like a little alligator is eating aphids, leave it alone. It's doing you a favor and eventually will become a lady beetle. On the Zesty Garden this Thursday, author Mary Gardner helps you find out about the good insects with her book, Good Garden Bugs. In Wait, Wait, Don't Plant That, you'll learn about Bishop's Weed, and then in Petals and Prose, Nancy Williams tells you how to encourage birds to your garden. It's the Zesty Garden, Thursday mornings at 10 from UPR. My father believed any man that needed a vacation should get a different job. For him, those 110 acres was the whole world. He needed nothing else. Share your story at the StoryCorps mobile recording booth in Vernal during the month of July. We are taking reservations online at upr.org, or you can call 1-800-850-4406. Support for the Utah StoryCorps project is made possible by our members and the Uinta County Library's Regional History Center, supporting people of all ages in their quests to learn, grow, and discover. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In 1859, Brigham Young sent two Mormon missionaries to live among the Hopi. Uh, the goal was to... Uh, uh, to, to learn the Hopi language, to, uh, to transcribe that or, or make a written version of the language, then to teach the Hopi. The ultimate goal uh, was to, uh, so the Hopi could read the Book of Mormon and so the Hopi would be converted to the, the Mormon religion. Uh, but all the while, they were supposed to be using the uh, Deseret Alphabet. We've been talking about Deseret Alphabet uh, on the program so far. We'll get into this fascinating story, these two young men, the uh, Mormon missions to the Hopi, and you're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com is our email. You can join us on Twitter as well. We're at Utah Public Radio. Uh, we're talking with uh, one of the authors of a new book out from University of Utah Press. It's called An 1860 English Hopi Vocabulary Written in the Deseret Alphabet. Uh, Ken Beasley. As our guest, he is a computational linguist. His uh, co-author is Dirk Elzinga, associate professor in the Department of Linguistics and English Language at Brigham Young uh, University. Uh, so, Ken Beasley, uh, I'm wondering just a couple more points on the uh, Deseret alphabet. Uh, in today, in the 20th century, and indeed today in the 21st century, um, uh, do we have uh, some of these uh, new orthographies being proposed? Is this still an impulse, or is this more of a 19th century impulse? Um, there are still people around who are trying to reform English orthography. 
Um, the most interesting one example, the most interesting comparison to the Deseret alphabet is called the Shaw alphabet or the Shavian alphabet. I mentioned Shaw already uh, uh, with his uh, play Pygmalion, and which was turned into My Fair Lady. Uh, Shaw definitely believed that English spelling, English orthography was a problem. And he, just like Willard Richards, thought that trying to reuse the old Roman letters was a mistake. He, too, thought that you needed a clean slate, that um, you needed to start over with a, a brand-new alphabet, new shapes. And his arguments were pretty much the same as Willard Richards. Uh, it would be faster, it would save paper and ink. Um, uh, you would, uh, he thought that people would never agree on uh, how to use the existing letters, for example, the letter G. Uh, if you reuse the letter G in your new orthography, do, do you mean the hard G as in guess, or do you mean the soft G as in gist? Um, the vowels are hopeless. Uh, we only have five vowel letters, but we, we have, um, you know, uh, or 12 or 14 vowel sounds, depending on your, your, your dialect. And um, so he thought, you just need to start with a clean slate. And when he died, his will in, eight, in 1950 left money to fund a competition to create a new non-Roman alphabet. And um, the competition was held. Uh, a man named Kingsley Reed an actual typographer, um, had the winning design, which has become known as the Shaw alphabet or the Shavian alphabet, S-H-A-V-I-A-N. You can easily search for that on the Internet and see what that looks like. And uh, it even resulted in the printing of one of Shaw's plays, Androcles and the Lion, in a bitextual version. You have facing pages with standard orthography and, and the Pittman alphabet. Uh, that also, you know, has not been a, a great success, although there are still some fans of it. There's a system called Unifon, which was uh, proposed somewhat more recently, U-N-I-F-O-N. And uh, these people are out there, but unlike the 19th century, they're considered now some kind of a, a lunatic fringe. In the 19th century, this was very respectable. There were highly educated, very influential people who were in favor of the reform. It may have been quixotic at the time, but it was it was quite serious and respectable in the 19th century. Hmm. Uh, so in today's world of computers, our digital world, what uh, do any of these reforms have a place, or is, or is it being denecessitated by, you know, that all you can do with computers? Well, uh, you can do all kinds of things with computers, um, uh, but, you know, we're still, on the whole, using standard English orthography. Mm -hmm. We're still using 26 Roman letters and various other punctuation marks and things. And still being confused, uh, especially people new to the language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just uh, look at the spelling and emails and things like that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true, yeah. Uh, that reminds me, um, one of the missionaries, uh, Shelton, you write, and this stood out to me from the book. Um, he noticed that in the Pittman system, they didn't have a symbol for the for what we know as the schwa, the you know the the ah uh sound, right? And that's true. Um, that's true of both the uh, Pittman 1847 alphabet and the Deseret alphabet, which in many ways was was modeled on it. And so, in a word like about, you know, the the first vowel sound in about generally considered one of these schwas, one of these neutral vowels, or, or the vowel in the middle of alphabet, the, the fa part, that um, kind of uh, neutral or uh, centralized vowel is, is called the schwa. And there's no letter in either one of these alphabets to, to represent it. And so in the Deseret alphabet, um, the word alphabet itself was spelled two different ways on the charts. In one case, it's spelled alphabet, which is not really very, very satisfactory. And in another one, it was alphabet, with the same vowel letter as in bat or cat. Mm. So, 
people looking at the Deseret alphabet today and trying to sound it out uh, find that as a problem. Uh, also, uh, they, they find other bizarre spellings. Uh, so they don't say class, they say cloth, as, <laughs> as you would in the south of England. Yeah, that'd be a, a problem, yeah. Uh, but it, what, I, what I found, what, what tickled me is that Pittman apparently recognized that he didn't have the schwa in his, his orthography. He didn't want to put it in, though. Um, he, he considered that including it would promote slovenly pronunciation. <laughs> so so that's the, that's the, the, the principle, the, the rule behind that, uh, the Pittman spellings were that you would, you would spell words as you would in some kind of carefully spoken elocution mode. Uh, and that was inherited by the Deseret Alphabet, although... Um, uh, Shelton thought that that was a problem. He invented a new letter. He invented a new letter for the schwa. Mm. And there were two or three examples of that, people trying to improve the Deseret alphabet by, by adding a schwa letter. But it was resisted. Brigham Young resisted changes to it. Um, he thought that these, these suggestions were evidence of education. Mm. <laughs> right. So this, and that... And this, he didn't think much of education and, and intellectuals, and uh, he said, this, this is the result of education. If you teach mm-hmm. it to children, they'll never know the difference. Yeah, oh, <laughs> interesting, interesting, yeah. Um, and, and this is, I guess, an example of the perils of, um, you know, prescription in language, uh, where it's hard to, hard to get people to do what they, what they don't want to do. Uh, let's take another break when we come back. I've been neglecting the, the, the fascinating historical aspect of this. Uh, and so we'll get to that uh, following the break. These two young men are assigned by Brigham Young, 1859, to go to the Hopi and to uh, to devise a written Hopi language, which the Hopi didn't have at that point, uh, and then to teach this uh, to them in the Deseret Alphabet. More following the break. With Dr. John Kabat-Zinn, a leading researcher in stress reduction at the University of Massachusetts and a teacher of mindfulness meditation. He's author of Wherever You Go, There You Are and Coming to Our Senses. Next time on Humankind. Join us for the first half of this week's Humankind, Thursday night at 8.30 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater. Exploring themes of love and redemption and classical tunes like June is Bustin' Out All Over and You'll Never Walk Alone. Carousel July 8th through August 8th in Logan. Information at utahfestival.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with uh, Kenneth Beasley. He's a computational linguist, co-author of a new book out from University of Utah Press. It's called An 1860 English Hopi Vocabulary Written in the Deseret Alphabet. So this gets us into the interesting uh, history of the Deseret Alphabet. Also interesting uh, history of uh, Mormon missions to the Hopi. And uh, it's a story of linguistics and Mormon history and Native American studies. Uh, you can join us here at 1-800-826-1495 with your question or comment, if you'd like, or upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, so let's get into the, the mission of these two young men. Um, and maybe we could set this up by illustrating that this was prote- you know, potentially hazardous. A later mission with Jacob Hablin, who's famous as a LDS missionary to the to the Indians, a young man was shot and killed by the Navajo, right? And then a previous mission to this, 1858, uh, the missionaries uh, left after just a couple of months, uh, half starved. They they did. Uh, it was actually after only a few weeks. Um, in 1858, Hamlin left four men in in a Hopi village, and there wasn't a lot of food and. Um, they didn't have any trade goods, and so within three weeks or so, they were uh, hungry and cold and miserable, and they had to pack up and go home. They suffered hugely on the way home, just barely got back alive. So you can imagine that in 1859, the next year, Hamlin was trying to put together a group to go back to the Hopis, and uh, there's some evidence that um, uh, there was resistance. <laughs> he had a hard time recruiting uh, his group to go. 
But eventually, uh, he led a party of, of seven, seven men, including himself, uh, from um, uh, what from Fort Clara, which is now Santa Clara, near uh, modern St. George, and um, led them uh, east and across the, the Colorado River at uh, the crossing of the Fathers and down to, down to Hopi country, which is in northeastern Arizona. Uh, Brigham Young had instructed him explicitly to take Marion Jackson Shelton down to the Hopis so that he could um, learn the language and create a writing system, an orthography for, for Hopi. Um, and then Brigham Young said, leave some suitable companion with him. So they, they got to, to Hopi, uh, settled in the village of Oribe, and there, on the spot, uh, Jacob Hamlin had to choose someone to stay with him, and his choice was a man named Thales Hastings Haskell. And Haskell had already been in the Southern Indian Mission for, for five years, working among the Paiutes, so he was... He was experienced, he was the ranking man, and he was nominally in charge of the mission. And, uh, but it was, it was Shelton who was the, the core. He was the scribe, he was the clerk. He had worked as a clerk in Salt Lake in the, in the history department. Uh, he was known to Brigham Young. He, he had helped uh, George A. Smith, who was the church historian, uh, with information about the various Indian tribes, Plains Indians. So... Um, uh, these two men were, were left in, in, in Hopi, Hopi country, and Jacob Hamlin went back home. They were supposed to stay for a year. They eventually lasted four months, and then they too packed up and, and headed home and got, got home without too much trouble. Hmm. A, a little bit, they, they were a little bit uh, uneasy about the fact that they hadn't completed their mission, so they gave several excuses why they returned home early. But hmm. they did a pretty good job, and... Uh, the history of that mission is, is fairly well known because uh, Haskell's journal survived. So, how did it? Uh, the, their their goal, of course, was to ultimate goal was to get the Book of Mormon to the to the Hopi, right, and convert them. How, were they successful? Uh, no, that that never happened. The idea was to create an orthography based on the Roman alphabet for Hopi, and then they would translate the Book of Mormon into that orthography. Uh, into into Hopi with with that Deseret Alphabet orthography, then the Hopi could read it in their own language and be converted. But um, the Mormons were tremendously impressed by the Hopi. The, this, this was a, a tribe that lived in villages. They they farmed. They they were relatively peaceful. Uh, they just seemed like our kind of Indians uh, from from the Mormon point of view. But they failed to realize just how culturally self and resistant to outside influences the Hopi were and, and are. Uh, it's, it's a tribe which is still today quite isolated, quite independent. Uh, they have maintained many of their own cultural, religious traditions. And um, they really, on the whole, did not have uh, a need of, of Mormons or other outsiders coming in. There is a small uh, Mormon congregation uh, in Hopi today, and a number of influential Hopis uh, are or have been Mormons uh, to some extent. But uh, the Hopis uh, never wholesale adopted uh, Mormonism. The Book of Mormon mm. was never translated mm. into Hopi. Now, one of the one of the goals, of course, to, to reach the ultimate goal. Uh, was to develop, I guess they were supposed to develop a written form of, of Hopi, which I guess did not exist? Um, that's right, but that's, that's true of, of every language, really. Languages are primarily spoken mediums. So when we're children, we, we grow up, uh, you and I, I, I think, grow up in homes where English was spoken, and we naturally learned how to speak English. So English is, is a natural language. It's something that you pick up as a child. If you happen to grow up in a German-speaking home or Russian-speaking home or a Hopi-speaking home, you'll, you'll learn the language that's spoken by people around you. Um, but writing is different. You, know, you don't naturally learn how to read and write, and indeed many people never do. We think of them as you know, illiterate. 
but that's the, that's the normal condition, to be able to speak, but to learn how to read and write, you have to go to school. You go to formal schooling, and you spend years learning how to do that. And so that's, that's a technology that we add to language. It's not the language itself. So um, Hopi uh, had never previously been written, and the idea was to send Marion Shelton down there to devise an orthography, to create an orthography, a writing system to be used for Hopi. And this, is, this sounds strange to people, but uh, I wish uh, Dirk Elzinga, my co-author, were here. He, he's doing the same thing now for White Mountain Ute. This is something that linguists do all the time. They go out in the field, they study a language, they, they describe its phonetics, phonology, syntax, rules. And, and then they have to devise an orthography for it, a way, a practical way to write it down, to, to write down stories and books and whatever. So uh, that makes perfect sense. It's, it's something that's very familiar to field linguists who, who get out there and work with language. Interesting. Yeah, I, I guess that is it. Uh, the way you explain it is natural distinction. You, you naturally learn spoken language, but you have, to, you have to go to school to learn written language. That's interesting that Professor Elzinga is, is right now developing orthography for the White Mountain Utes. I want to uh, get into, we're just running down to the near the end of the program, and I want to get sort, sort of a, uh, where do they go from here, Those these young missionaries? But first, um, the Desert Alphabet, to return one more time to the Desert Alphabet, some misconceptions have grown up about the Desert Alphabet. You, you list some of those in the book. I wonder if you'd treat that briefly. Oh, yeah. Uh, there are a few aspects of uh, Mormon history that are, uh, more misunderstood than the, than the Deseret Alphabet. It, it seems strange today. But as I pointed out, in the 19th century, it was not strange at all. People knew exactly, you know, educated people knew exactly what it was and what it was trying to do. Um, one of the misconceptions is that the, the Deseret Alphabet was a new language. This is the most serious one. You know, a language is something like, you know, English, Spanish, French, Portuguese, whatever. You, you speak a language, or or if you're deaf, you sign a language. These are also natural languages. And um, it's partly a terminological problem. We, we don't distinguish language and orthography in our normal everyday speech. Uh, so, um, uh, in fact, in English, we, we have the language itself, and you can be a, you can be a native English speaker and be illiterate, not have any command of the orthography at all, or, or uh, just a marginal command of the orthography. And the, the orthography is separate. It's something you learn separately, and it's something that can be changed without changing the language. So some, some people have misunderstood the Deseret Alphabet as a language, something that people, that people would speak Deseret Alphabet to each other. That's a serious misunderstanding. Um, another charge that many people make is that the Deseret Alphabet was designed by the Mormon Church for secrecy, that it was intended to keep Mormon secrets away from outsiders. And, uh, you know, that sounds very spectacular and dramatic, but in fact there's almost no, nothing that you can point at that would give evidence for that, and abundant evidence against it. Um, as I pointed out, the, the Mormons almost chose a Pittman Roman-based alphabet twice uh, before settling on the Deseret alphabet. And after the Deseret alphabet died, they went back to the Pittman alphabets, Roman-based alphabets, which provide no practical secrecy at all. Um, you look at the, at the works that were published and transcribed into the Deseret alphabet, and there, there are some minuscule things, meeting minutes, a few little letters, uh, a financial ledger, part of the history of Brigham Young, all harmless stuff. Um, but the vast majority, 99% of what was transcribed was scripture. Uh, you have the, the Book of Mormon, which was, was published. You have the Doctrine and Covenants. And even the whole Bible were transcribed into Deseret Alphabet, although they were, were never printed. So... Um, the Mormons transcribed things like the, the Book of Mormon into the Deseret Alphabet in exactly the same spirit that they were translating these same books 
into Danish and uh, Welsh and French and Spanish and German. They weren't trying to keep secrets. They were trying to get the word out in yet another form. So um, what else? The, the, key, the, the key to the alphabet, a chart showing the alphabet, was printed at the beginning of each book. If you're trying to keep secrets, you know, that's the stupidest thing you can do is, is print the key right at the beginning of it. <laughs> uh, the practice articles in the, in the Deseret News that came out in 1859, 1860, 1864, almost all of those had the key right at the beginning. At the very end, they started taking away the key, you know, it was kind of a crutch for people. But um, there, there were no secrets there. This was a public reform. The, the Mormons were promoting it principally among Mormons, but there was no attempt or intention to keep it secret. Um, another idea that's promoted often is that uh, it was this influx of uh, foreign converts that caused the church to become interested in the Deseret Alphabet. Well, interest in spelling reform among the Mormons goes back to the Nauvoo period in the 1840s, and even perhaps back to Kirtland. Uh, this was before there were any significant numbers of foreign converts. So they were they were plugging into this general uh, worldwide interest, in the English-speaking world anyway, in spelling reform, and they saw many benefits even just for English speakers. Hmm. So, like I say, at the time it was progressive, it was scientific, it was forward-looking, and, and, and that's If you just joined us, we're uh, talking with Ken Beasley. He's one of the authors of an 1860 English Hopi vocabulary written in the Deseret Alphabet that's uh, out from University of Utah Press. Interesting history and uh, linguistics as well, a linguistic mystery, as uh, Ken Beasley and his uh, co-author Dirk Elzinga encountered this uh, document in the archives of the LDS Church and uh, and had to had to follow the, the clues. They they cracked the, the case, and the result is, is this book. We have another five minutes left in, in the program. Uh, I'm thinking we, we did a program not too long ago on invented languages. That impulse seems to me to be very idealistic, and it, it's it's reminding me of the, the that impulse, which seems to be tied to idealism in the 19th century, of a new orthographies or, or writing systems. Uh, I don't know if you... If you make the same connection, you know, if someone picks up Esperanto, it seems like an impulse to try to communicate more widely. Yeah, uh, there's something of the same spirit there. Um, there are any number of invented languages. There have been thousands of them uh, documented, although most of them never go very far. Uh, Esperanto is one which uh, had relative success. Uh, another one was Volapük. We'll have to leave the, uh, where did they end up, uh, very interesting stories of the, the two young men and uh, Mormon missionaries here. Uh, just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, I'm curious what this whole experience has done for you, this cracking this mystery and diving into, uh, you know, as you continue to do in the Deseret Alphabet and uh, developing this uh, English Hopi vocabulary. What's, what's been the result for you? Have you learned something? When I, when I found this document and uh, went down to, to Hopi in the same year. Um, since then, I've been going back to the Hopi Reservation once or twice a year, 
Um, I uh, am in contact with uh, Professor Kenneth Hill of uh, the University of Arizona, now retired, who created a beautiful uh, modern uh, dictionary of Hopi. He was the editor-in-chief of a Hopi dictionary project, which was really a whole army of people who created this dictionary. And I've done some work with him, helping to, uh, to do computer things, uh, typesetting and, and checking of uh, the dictionary database. Uh, he hopes someday to, to produce uh, a second edition of that, and that would be a wonderful thing to help document and promote a language which, unfortunately, is, is now in danger because uh, children are not learning it. And that's, that's the fate, unfortunately, of most American Indian languages today. They're, they're either in grave danger of dying out uh, immediately or over the next 20 years, uh, one funeral at a time. Yeah, that's that is a that's a, it's a sad thing, and there are programs to to try to combat that and to teach, you know, teach these languages to to young people. Um, so that we've reached the end of our time, uh, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, in 1860, English Hopi vocabulary written in the Desert Alphabet is the name of the book. It's out from University of Utah Press. The authors are Kenneth Beasley and Dirk Elzingo. We've been talking with uh, Ken Beasley on the program uh, today. Uh, fascinating uh, book and discussion. Thank you so much. Welcome. Thank you for having me. And uh, join uh, Sherry Quinn tomorrow for science topics. And, of course, coming up at the top of the hour, it's Brian Earle with the Zesty Garden. Get your gardening questions ready. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. Coming up, music as the tender poetry of love. Robert Schumann wrote this piano concerto for his wife, the great pianist Clara Schumann. We'll hear it from a concert in Switzerland with Marta Argerich at the piano. I'm Fred Child. Join me for the next Performance Today from APM. Thursday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. What can a Big Mac do for you? Oh, more than you'd think. He was driving up that morning from San Diego with a friend, and they wanted to try to sneak into the Super Bowl and ask if I was willing to join them. I'm Kai Rizdal. Yes, a fringe benefit with your Happy Meal. It's next time on Marketplace from 8 p.m. Join us tonight at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.